Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape the community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. For years, the Oneida Nation has faced challenges to its sovereignty from the small village of Hobart, which lies on the eastern half of the reservation, just west of Green Bay. The disputes range from garbage collection to police jurisdiction and roadways, but they always come down to challenging the nation's ability to self-govern. Rebecca Webster was an attorney for the tribe and shares the history of these legal battles in a new book called In Defense of Sovereignty. Webster says Hobart's tactics are part of a wider strategy to upend tribal sovereignty throughout the country. She joins WUWM's Lena Tran to share more. So in English, what I just said is greetings, everybody. My name is Ganyete Gale, which means snow scattered here and there. My English name is Becky Webster. I'm Wolf Clan. I'm Oneida, and I grew up near Duck Creek that runs through the Oneida Reservation in Wisconsin. Just to dive in, you know, you write pretty early on that there's this patchwork of land ownership in the reservation. Different people can own it, and even under tribal ownership, there are different kinds of status, which leads to all these conflicts over who has jurisdiction, whether it's the nation, the state, the village, federal government. Can you describe how changes in federal Indian policy basically paved the way for the legal battle that you describe in your new book? It started with our treaty of 1838, the treaty with the Oneida. That set aside our current reservation here in Wisconsin as 65,400 acres or so. So that um, was during the treaty-making era, part of the removal treaties, actually, that removed us from New York State. That's where the Oneida people are originally from. So that land, according to the treaty, was held by the tribe as a whole. Individual people didn't own pieces of that. The tribe held that as communal property. And in 1887, Congress passed the General Allotment Act, and that act was meant to break up tribal land holdings. And what it did is it granted ownership of individual parcels within reservation boundaries like Oneida and gave title to individual people. It was held in in a protected status for a period of time, but then uh, would become just like everybody else's land where you could mortgage it, you could sell it, you had to pay taxes. And what happened in the case of Oneida here, um, within a single generation, we lost over 90% of the land, meaning it went from ownership from tribal members to non-members because of tax foreclosures, mortgage foreclosures, scrupulous land sales, all kinds of things happened to have such a dramatic loss of land. So that's one of the federal policies. And then what came on its heels was in the early 1900s, uh, late 1920s, there was a report called the Miriam Report, which evaluated the success of the General Allotment Act's goals of assimilating Indian people into mainstream society and breaking up tribal land holdings. The report revealed that, yes, you broke up tribal land holdings throughout the United States, but Indian people did not assimilate and melt away into mainstream society. And in fact, Indian people remained on their reservations more poor and desolate than ever. And if you really want to address this Indian problem, you need to restore management of tribal affairs to tribal governments. And then Congress later passed the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. And that set in place a process 
among other things, lots of things for tribes to reacquire land on their reservations and have that land taken into trust status, the same status it was under the treaty. Because of all of these shifts in federal Indian policy, we now have state and local governments owning land. We have non-tribal members owning land. We have tribal members owning land. We have the tribal government owning land all in this, some people call it a checkerboard pattern throughout the Oneida Reservation. And on top of that, we also have local governments here on the reservation. So we share this territory with the town governments, city governments, and county governments. All of these different overlapping layers of ownership and jurisdiction lead to a really confusing landscape when you're trying to plan for how this place looks. The confusing landscape that you find yourself in as an attorney when you are with the United Nations Intergovernmental Negotiation Team or the legal team, how did you first get involved in that work? So that was one of my favorite things that I did when I was an attorney for for my tribe is um, to be able to reach out and work with these local governments that we share this territory with to try to figure out ways to provide the best services to our respective and combined communities. One time we were negotiating with the city of Green Bay, the early stages of us meeting together, we had brought in a map to show the Oneida Reservation, and there's a portion that overlaps with the city of Green Bay. And the the mayor at the time looked at the map and he said, oh, tell me, how is it that the reservation came to be within the city boundaries? And we were just, okay, hold on a minute. This is a really great teaching moment because the Oneida Reservation was here before Wisconsin was a state. So we need to start there. And then we walk through the history. So those intergovernmental uh, discussions are a really great opportunity for us to learn about each other and to be able to not only interpersonally develop those relationships, but to find out how each government works and ways that we can work together to provide optimal services to our shared communities. So you just mentioned Green Bay, but much of the focus of the book is this legal feud between the village of Hobart and Oneida Nation that plays out over garbage collection, police jurisdiction, roadways, all of it challenging the nation's ability to self-govern. I guess, where did all of that start? The first lawsuit actually was um, coincided with the year I graduated law school and came home. It was the, the welcome home was a lawsuit that the village filed because the Oneida Nation had purchased a large chunk of property in an area that's you know within the village of Hobart, but on the Oneida Reservation. Hobart wanted to develop that into an industrial park. The Oneida Nation did not want that area to become an industrial park because we don't control you know, what other folks are doing on the reservation, the only way for us to have a say in that would be to purchase the property. So we did. Um, And the dispute on that instance was whether or not the village was going to put a road through there for their industrial park. And since we bought the land, we said, we don't really want a road here. We're not going to develop it. And they said, we don't care. We want to put a road in anyway. And then we were in court. So that was kind of the start of the more recent things. Bill Gulnick, who was our former uh, chief of staff for Oneida, was also participating in a lot of these intergovernmental negotiations, as well as consulted on these the, the lawsuits that we had. But he has a bit of history even before that, um, into the 80s, that was going on here in Oneida. So these aren't really new issues, so to speak. They're just the ones that had just 
come just one right after the other in succession that led to the most recent set of disagreements between the United Nation and this one particular local government. What was that like as a young law school graduate to have this be the first case that you were working on? You know, when you come out of school, you really don't know what you're going to be doing. So I I was um, a little bit shocked to find out that there was this local government that disliked us so much that they were willing to challenge us at every turn like this. And and this is the part of the reservation that I grew up in. I had no idea there was a Hobart when I was growing up. I just thought it was all the Oneida reservation. It was extra strange in one of the lawsuits that my best friend in high school, her dad had joined on an amicus brief. So that that really troubled me to think that all the times that I was at her house in in school, did did he really have this disdain for me because because I'm Oneida? So it, it just really switched around what what I thought I knew of what was going on here when I was growing up. You knew there was a little bit of a, of a hostility, but to know that it was that close was really troubling to to see that that there were more people in the community that disliked Oneida than I had originally thought. Can you explain, you know, why? Or what's your understanding of, you know, why the village cares about the land issues, you know, exerting their taxes, their ordinances? What is at stake from their point of view? I think it's just a matter of control. And they have such a hard time letting go of control over things that they actually, under federal law, they don't have an ability to to have control over. So we're, the United Nation is a sovereign tribal government and, and Hobart is a municipal government with very limited powers under state law. And they constantly and regularly try to tell the United Nation how it should be going about doing its business. And sometimes you have to look back at that. And it's it's kind of comical that, that they would think that they have the ability to have a say in what's going on on the reservation in, in this part of the reservation. But they would tell the people in the village of Hobart that the United Nation is a threat which which is a, a little bit hilarious because the they would be sacrificing our intergovernmental agreement with them and they would be dedicating, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just to sue the United Nation and the monetary gain or loss so to speak that they would have is is actually quite small. So I was estimating it's about 250-300,000 or so a year at the time that they were losing or spending just to fight the Oneida tribe. And one of the main things was that they were complaining to the taxpayers about was our fee to trust. Remember when I mentioned the Indian Reorganization Act, having our land restored back to that treaty status, which would be non-taxable. So the village was saying that if the Oneida nation is allowed to remove property from the tax rolls, that would shift the burden over to other taxpaying residents. And they got everybody really whipped up about that. But that that really isn't the true story. In my book, I talk about what they filed in their own paperwork in these appeals. And they noted that if the nation had been successful in having every single parcel of land in the village of Hobart taken into trust, at the time of the appeal, the village would have lost a combined annual total of $36,148.88, which is 1.4% of their budget. Money is not what this is about. It's about control. And it's about trying to get, trying to relegate the Oneida Nation to the status of a common landowner. 
that that fight for control eventually comes to a head, at least in your book, over the Unida's Apple Fest. What is Apple Fest? And then how did that come to take center stage for for this fight for sovereignty? That was centered on the Oneida Big Apple Fest, which is a celebration of our relationship with apple orchards. Um, even though, you know, apples aren't indigenous to the United States, the Oneida people and our other Haudenosaunee relatives have a very long history of caring for our apples. So that was one of the things at harvest time that we would have a festival to celebrate those apples. And part of it was in the village of Hobart, and it may have all been within Hobart, now that I'm thinking about it. But what happened is Hobart said, hey, wait a minute, we want you to get an event permit from us. And the Oneida Nation is just, what? Why are we going to get a permit from you for this? This is crazy. Not only is our police force four times the size of your police force, we've already have excellent working relationships with all of Brown County, which is Hobart's located in Brown County. We have agreements with them over what will happen on those county roads. We're set. We don't need um, your input or your interference with this at all. And Hobart sued. This really brought to light Hobart's main arguments throughout all of this litigation, is they're really challenging that the Oneida Nation isn't a legitimate government, that we didn't exist before 1934, um, and that we shouldn't be allowed to have our land taken into trust. And most importantly, that our reservation somehow over the course of that allotment process disappeared. So it was either diminished or disestablished. So the um, district court found in favor of Hobart, which was a terrifying time for us because that would that would that would really turn back the clock on a lot of the things that we were understanding about the jurisdictional landscape here on the Oneida Reservation and potentially in other reservations throughout the country. On appeal, fortunately, the Oneida Nation won, and the court there had said, "No, the the Oneida Reservation still exists. They don't have to get your permits." And all of the the arguments that Hobart had tried to put forward, the Seventh Circuit had turned down. Mm -hmm. So the question is, or the challenge is, whether the reservation still exists after the tribe lost ownership of the land due to those federal policies that you were describing earlier? Yes, yes. So Hobart's argument was that once land had been allotted and the tribal member lost ownership of that land, that it somehow fell off of the reservation, like it was no longer reservation land, which Mm -hmm. really ran counter to all of the cases that the Supreme Court and other courts have decided before. So, and this is all, again, this group called Citizens for Equal Rights Alliance. And that group is affirmatively trying to change federal Indian policy in favor of state and local governments to the detriment of tribal governments. The Oneida Reservation was one of their targets because they knew that they had a Republican-appointed federal judge here, and they wanted to try to change federal Indian law. And they Mm -hmm. almost succeeded in that Big Apple Fest case when the federal judge tried to change the law and said, yes, all of this resulted in the diminishment or disestablishment of the Oneida Reservation, which ran counter to everything that I had understood about federal Indian law. And again, like I mentioned, fortunately, the Seventh Circuit said, no, wait a minute, That, that doesn't make sense. That's not how things are. Hobart is this pretty small town of today, I think like 10,000 people, and it's over something innocuous sounding like, you know, a big apple fest. When did you realize that that had huge stakes for Indian reservations across the country? 
Well, we we knew it. There were signs all over the place where we had been in contact with other tribal um, attorneys in for other tribal reservations, um, and we would see the briefs that are almost identical. So they had this network that where they would challenge, you know, fee to trust applications, jurisdictional issues in different reservations throughout the country again to try to change federal Indian law. So this isn't something that's just happening here in Oneida. This is happening on other reservations where you have these anti-tribal organizations infiltrating these local governments to try to get the law changed to the detriment of tribal sovereignty. Mm. Do you feel that your book or these experience offer lessons for nations facing similar challenges elsewhere? Yes, most definitely. I'm hoping that this book will bring awareness to these types of issues where people might just say, oh, you know, just get their permit. Just it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. These are huge issues that if we, you know, succumb to these things, what what's next? What are these local governments going to do to chip away at our tribal sovereignty? Because I said this isn't just happening here in Oneida. This is happening in other places. So we need to continue that network of tribes talking to each other to help each other in these types of disputes, because we know that this is something that we just we need to stay on top of and we need to stay vigilant. This has been really informative. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Rebecca Webster is the author of In Defense of Sovereignty and an assistant professor in American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lake effect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight podcast. 